Hey everybody, welcome to a very special episode of the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. This is part one of part two, yes you heard me right, of uh, History of Firesign Theater with Phil Proctor. Uh, this is part one of two of uh, Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him, uh, which makes it part two of the whole series, but you understand. It's a long conversation we had with Phil Proctor. It's myself, friend of the show, Taylor Jessen, friend of the show, Jeremy Guskin. We all discuss Waiting for the Electrician. Um, this is uh, this is some of the buildup, but it's also we get into the actual production of the album, some amazing behind-the-scenes stories, um, not just of how they wrote it, but recording it, and this one fantastic and <laughs> story about some Foley stuff that, uh, well, you can just about hear me cringe. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm sure it was audible, um, but it's, it's, it's great. It's just, it's some really good stuff. So enjoy this. You can please also watch this on youtube.com slash comedy on vinyl. Send people there. I want people to watch it. I mean, we shot it for a reason. I'd like people to be able to watch this in full HD. Part two of this will come out soon. Might not be next week. Uh, it takes a while to render these and get these ready. Um, but enjoy part one of waiting for the electrician or someone like him, the history of fire sign theater here on comedy on vinyl. I'm Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. Okay, right. the year is 1968. It the is the album. Yeah, it oh. is. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Did we I'm not having an acid flashback. <laughs> <laughs> no, 68. Okay. The album is waiting for the electrician or someone like him. The artist is the Fire Sign Theater, and we have a quarter of that group right here again. Phil Proctor, thank you for being here again. Wait a minute, I, I am a quarter. You are a quarter. But I'm not worth a plug nickel anymore. <laughs> okay. So. so how many times is your face on this album cover? Well, One, th- two, we three, did, this was an album cover we didn't have any control over. Really? Okay. And it's called A Naive Collage. Uh-huh. <clears throat> uh, and, you know, because they didn't know who we were. Sure. Yeah. And we didn't know who we were. And so they <laughs> made this naive collage. I rem- I vaguely remember the the uh, photo session, mm-hmm. and and I, of course I I distinctly remember the clothes uh-huh. because we were all uh, hippies uh-huh. at that time, and whatever that meant. I mean, you know, hippies invented them. We weren't bongo playing, sure. you know, turtleneck. You weren't black beats. Turtleneck. We weren't no, beats. Beats. Yeah, beats. No, we weren't beats. We were we were hippies, but we weren't hippies. We were we were. Uh, we were all educated and clean. Yeah, clean, <laughs> educated young men. You had proper radio voices. We had radio voices. We smoked true. pot. You know. Sure. I mean, we we embraced the the, the cult, the new culture, the the youth culture, and uh, and I remember part of that was the clothes. Yeah, you go out and you look for the coolest clothes you can find, and uh, a different clothes. You know, you mm-hmm. have to wear ties and coats and things. So uh, we're all wearing our. Are kind. See, we have things around our necks, uh-huh. little things, and I and cool like yellow glasses, yeah. cool yellow glasses. Oh, those are good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I think Peter Fonda turned me onto those. In fact, mm-hmm. and Austin's uh, in these great white pants. Yeah, I know. Yes, yeah, so white pants. And Osman, uh, he's he's only wears his squ- well. Both Bergman and Osman are still wearing their square, you know, glasses. Mm-hmm. But uh, but that's okay. The minds behind the glasses were certainly not. Square, they were uh, uh, elliptical mm-hmm. or something. Oh, and I just I forgot I was the baby, <laughs> the, the papoose in the what? lower left hand corner. The lower left hand corner. Yeah, I, I was the papoose. So anyway, a naive collage, and then uh, these interesting 
strange things on the the other side. Uh, but it was okay. And at the time that we did this, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, we were managed by uh, Fitzgerald, by uh, Jimmy Guercio, who was the manager of Chicago, among other acts, and a fellow named Fitzgerald. Larry Fitzgerald, I think his name was, was our particular manager person, who, uh, of course, Bergman destroyed by removing his stomach or something. I mean, I remember he finally st just stopped. He says, I can't do this because we were four hippies. We were unmanageable. You know, <laughs> we, we, Fireside Theater, if, if it ever had found someone, a, a lion tamer or something, who could have managed us, mm -hmm. I think our career would have been uh, quite different. Uh, but in any event, here we were surprisingly making our first record, <clears throat> and I can tell you how uh, I, I believe I became involved in this, uh, and I'll try to get it right as opposed to the last time we talked about it. Uh, <laughs> because yes, fewer, it's, it's interesting. Fewer elephants this time, please. It's interesting. Uh, and if I repeat myself, uh, and you want to compare it to the last time, it, it might, that would be interesting too. It'd be like a three-dimensional chess game. So, you know, did he move the pawn that last time over here? When we'll he just edit out those parts of your brain right. which are and no longer correct. Taylor Jessen, our archivist and, and a wonderful producer, uh, uh, is uh, here to help keep me on track, if you will. So here I go. Uh, I had come out to Los Angeles in a musical comedy called. Mm -hmm. Um, the Amorous Flea, uh -huh. which was based on Moliere's School for Wives, written by Jerry Devine, who uh, had was a writer who had worked on Gangbusters on the radio. Uh -huh. He was a radio writer. And he had adapted this into an absolutely charming, funny musical. My co-star was Imelda DeMartin. I was working with Lou Parker, who was a famous vaudevillian mm -hmm. and a wonderful actor. And Seal Cabot, who uh, was a great farceuse. And uh, uh, Jack Fletcher, who was a wonderful, funny, gay actor mm -hmm. in, in the musical comedy tradition. <laughs> it was a wonderfully cast piece and great fun to do. Uh, and and later, Frank Parker, when we came out to L.A., who was on the Arthur Godfrey show, mm -hmm. he's like the tenor on the Arthur Godfrey show, he he took over one of the roles, and I got to know him. So I had Lou Parker and Frank Parker, uh, Seal Cabot, who was married to uh, oh, the, uh, a great comic magician, big, tall, funny comic magician. Uh, name will, will come to me later. Famous. On, tel on television all the time. Uh, anyway, it was a great cast, and we we settled in for a run at the Las Palmas Theater in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know how to drive, so they put me up at the Montecito, which was where all the the actors would come in who were doing uh, roles in, in television shows. It was a it's still there, and it's a, a hotel with kitchens, and you know your rooms have kitchens. Oh, okay. Right? And I was walking distance from Musso and Frank's. Hmm. <clears throat> so in the morning, I'd go and have a flannel cake at Musso and Frank's, mm -hmm. and I'd hang around Hollywood, and then I'd go do the show, and uh, Michelli's was right up the street. Afterwards, you'd go to Michelli's for mm -hmm. drinks and everything. It was very successful. Uh, but in the middle of the run, 
when we were kind of going like, yeah, we made it, we're settling in. And I had by then, I I moved into an apartment on Vista del Mar, which means a view of the sea. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> uh, and then later, up Beachwood Canyon, I actually, uh-huh. because we were going to settle in for a run. Okay, I'll get a nice little house apartment on Beachwood Canyon, overlooking, you know, the... I could see to, all the way down to the ocean. Uh, it was the just, Hollywood sign? Is yeah, just above the Hollywood sign. Yeah, yeah. Below, pardon me, mm-hmm. the Hollywood sign. So I'd say the Hollywood sign and uh, all of California, and all of Los Angeles. And then I get a phone call from my agent in New York, Lucy Kroll Agency. I had auditioned for a musical in New York called A Time for Singing. Uh, and out of like 2,000 kids who auditioned for this, they chose me. And it was... They want to do a, a reading of the musical next week on, like, Monday, and they want you to be there, and they'll fly you there and everything. And I said, but, well, I'm, but I, I'm show. I'm, I'm, and <clears throat> no one to study. So it was, like, horrible. And it was my, my first, but definitely not my last, uh, contact with conflict uh-huh. in this business. Oh my God, the conflict! <laughs> you know, you talk about it, being in two places at once. You're not anywhere at all. You, all, it, it, if you could be in two places at once, you could have a hell of a career oh, in this sure. business. <laughs> but you always are having to make a choice: should I do this the guest starring part in this television show, mm-hmm. or should I do this commercial, mm-hmm. which might mean a lot? And the times that we all make bad choices, you have no idea. Yep. But occasionally you make a good choice. And occasionally you know you made the bad choices. Yes. You see the other person, it's like, well, look at them. They yeah. all that success. Yeah. Oh, look things. at them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, I, my agent resolved it. My producers found a replacement for me. And I was able to fly back to New York and mm-hmm. do this musical, Time of Singing, which, of course, was a wonderful musical based on uh, a mining disaster where an entire family is wiped out. Oh. Uh, How Green Was My Valley. Was ah, yes, beautiful right, there we go. Sure, beautiful sure, book, sure. beautiful movie, mm-hmm. beautiful uh, musical. Alexander Cohn producing, Gerald Friedman directing, uh, George Hearn was my old, one of my older brothers, uh, Shaney Wallace... And Tessie O'Shea, a legend of, of Irish and English uh, com- musical comedy, uh, uh, Whitehall gang stage stuff. A wonderful cast. Ivor Emanuel, wonderful people. And, uh, uh, and a, a beautifully mounted, expensive musical. Ming Cho Lee did the sets, which once ran over one of the dancers, Patty Melt. No, Mound. Patty Mound was her name. Patty Mound <laughs> ran her right over. Because she's moving around with a big wall. And I like Patty Melt. Patty I do too. Better, yeah. She should have been named Patty Melt. Or on Broadway or off Broadway? On Broadway. Yeah. <laughs> on Broadway. And we we, uh, we had the whole thing. We went out of town. We, we tried it out in Boston. There was a huge fire in Boston. I remember being on the roof of the theater watching this fire during intermission with the some of the chorus girls and uh, uh, and at that and then uh, Gower Champion came in and he uh-huh. was our our doctor he helped doctor the show a little bit I got to be work with him and we had lines going around the block they loved the show because it was both heartwarming and heartbreaking mm-hmm. music was great and uh, uh, and then we opened and we and the main reviewer Frank Rich, I think his name was, something like that. Main review didn't like the show. 
New York, uh, New York Times. Times. Didn't like the show. Mm-hmm. And so Alexander Cohen, brilliant producer, uh, was going to do a great publicity blitz with all the good reviews. Mm-hmm. And there was a newspaper strike. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of the show. Oh, my God. End of the show. Suddenly nobody was coming to the box office because they might have read that review or they didn't know it was happening. And they know, and, and uh, there was no such thing as word of mouth in the way that there is now. Yeah. You know, there was, there was no, it, it, it would, it, nobody could tweet or, you know, or Facebook, how wonderful, yeah. what great fun they had at the show, what a great show it was. And the amount of time it takes for the word to travel yeah. to New York, mm-hmm. and it, things it, already it closed, was too slow. there's yeah. been something else that's already closed. So and we had an adumbrated run. Did this all go down in two weeks, six weeks? Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Two Do you guys have your uh, poster up at Joe Allen? Gosh, I don't really know. Well, I don't know. All, all the good ones that closed earlier. Oh, well, then, right. then we're there. Yeah. <laughs> then we're there. Uh, and we did do a cast album. Oh, nice. We did a cast album. We recorded it. Hmm. And, uh, uh, which was wonderful. So, you know, a lot of good came out of it. And, and it was a lot of fun for me. But then I thought, well, what the hell am I going to do now? So, I, uh, I connected up. Let's see if I can get this right. But it seems right. I connected up with a, a, a girl I'd met when I was hanging out with Brandon DeWilda and Peter Fonda uh, in, in Hollywood uh, ar- around this time, okay? And was that when the Sunset Strip riot happened? November 66, that was. Yeah, 66. So that yeah. was when I came back? Yeah, oh, that's well, right. Yeah, we've got, we've got to the okay. bit where oh, okay. you, you sat on Bergman's face. Okay. Yeah. No. Okay. So yeah. it's like November of '66 is when you start sitting in on 65. Radio Free Oz. Okay. '65. 65. Yeah. Okay. So here's what happened. Yeah, I got it now. Okay. The show closes. Mm-hmm. Forget Diana. Do we get to her later? <laughs> It'll be worth waiting for. Uh, With teeth like that, Jesus Christ! Oh. <laughs> Please. She, she invented electric clothing, but that's another story. So, <clears throat> the show closes. I immediately get cast as Brandon DeWilde's understudy in Evan Hunter's uh, comedy, and I use the word loosely, Mm -hmm. (laughs) A Race of Hairy Men, which was his attempt to explain that there there was going to be a youth revolution. Not terribly successful. And uh, so Brandon and I, who had been fated to meet because I'd been asked to understudy him when I was a child actor and he was a child actor in a play called Mrs. McThing, which starred Helen Hayes back in the 50s, I guess it was, or maybe even the late 40s, I don't remember. Uh, He, I I understudied him, and we became friends just like that. Mm -hmm. And he was ahead. He loved to smoke pot. So after rehearsals, we used to go up to a dressing room at the Henry Miller Theater, I think it was, where we were, up in, uh, to a dressing room on the top of the uh, uh, theater, and we turn on the air conditioner and we smoke pot and get stoned. Yeah. <laughs> There's the air conditioner that did not work. No, it wasn't that. We, we we discovered at the end of the run that the air conditioner was sitting inside the window. That's right. <laughs> the window the window wasn't open, oh so it was just circulating the smoke. <laughs> right, right. Like, good stuff. No, no. No, we were, we were in this, this maelstrom of smoke. So anyway, we became great pals. It was not a great success, this play. And it closed, but Brandon and I uh, had had a friendship. He had married 
a girl uh, who was the sister of one of my classmates at Yale. Mm -hmm. Susan Ma was her name. Really cute little girl. And he had a Basenji. uh, And I used to go up to his apartment on the West End, I guess it was, and uh, smoke pot and hash. And and he he was trying to reinvent himself as a musician. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and he was a good musician. He could sing. So he was. He had taught himself the guitar. And so he'd be singing all the time. And I'd sing along, you know. Fun. Uh, and, and I met all kinds of interesting people like Graham Parsons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we used to go and listen to the International Submarine Band all the time with mm-hmm. Graham Parsons. And all these other great musicians. And uh, it was a very interesting little New York life that I had. West. How long ago we leave Goshen? About two hours ago. Ain't we ever gonna stop? Quite done, my boys. Wagon boss. No, my fellow settlers, Hold it down. we stand here at the edge of civilization on the banks of the Mississippi River, looking west at our destiny. What may appear to the faint-hearted as a limitless expanse of godforsaken wilderness sure is. is in reality a golden opportunity for humble, God-fearing people like ourselves and our families and our children and the generations are coming to carve a new life out of the American Indian. Welcome, white brother. Engines! Call the wagons up into a circle! Why do you always do that? We get better reception that way. Do you mind if I put this antenna up on yonder peak? That's our sacred mountain. This is our sacred antenna. It's shaped like a cross made out of aluminum. Uh, got any aluminum? And then he said uh, he wanted to go out to, to resuscitate his career in the movies. And so I had uh, taken driving lessons when I was doing the Amherst Fleet because you can't walk in Los Angeles. One night I tried to walk from one place to another and I practically was asphyxiated by carbon monoxide, mm-hmm. you know. And there's no sidewalks, you know. That's the thing that gets me. No sidewalks. It's one of my favorite lines from L.A.'s story. And, like, I watched that as a New Yorker and thought it was funny, and then I moved out here, and I realized it was art. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of my favorite things. He picks her up and drives three houses <laughs> and then stops. And she goes... Well, that's it. Couldn't we have walked? Uh, <laughs> oh, walk! <laughs> Are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you, you move uh, Los Angeles around the letters and it spells legs on sale. <laughs> or sale on legs, for that matter. As opposed to Manhattan, Woody Allen's movie Manhattan, where he runs yeah, right. to her apartment. You know, about, oh, man. So anyway, uh, uh, so Brandon and I drove across country uh, to, to come out to L.A. And that's where we met up with Peter Fonda. And that's where we got involved in the Sunset Strip riot. And that's where I sat on Peter Bergman's face. And that's how the Fireside Theater started. All right. So uh, we were basically just doing radio, KPFK. And again, I'm going to call upon uh, uh, Taylor to help me with this. Uh, And we became successful uh, the Fireside Theater became a very successful part of Peter's Radio Free Oz uh-huh. show. And uh, he did the first lovin' mm-hmm. during that time. Mm-hmm. 
and I played a Russian character called Yavas Lublyu, which means I love you <laughs> in Russian, uh, Russian poet, mm-hmm. and was part of all that madness. And uh, we, I think we, we, we improvised together at UCLA in, in the student union doing uh, this, uh, a crude early version of Waiting for Electricity. Yeah, improv might be right. What I've got, the earliest like Firesign flyer that I've got is from April of 67, and it's it's Peter Bergman and the Oz Firesign Theater. <laughs> the Oz or, no, 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 no. It no. was not advertised as Oz Fire the- no. Firesign Theater. It was the Bulgarian... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Bulgarian players, players in, in exile. Some, in exile. <laughs> yeah, but it was yeah. Bergman Plus. Plus, yeah. Uh-huh. So that's no, how no, they we, were marketing uh, it. Bro, so, everything that we did on the radio at that time was as anonymous as possible. Okay. Because we we all, all, who are we? Uh, Phil Austin, uh, David Osman, Peter the Wizard of Oz, and myself, uh, all met at uh, KPFK, realized we were all fire signs, which was bizarre, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and found that we had a knack for improvising together and playing different characters. Mm-hmm. This radio is perfect. So w- the anonymity of it was more important than the identity as the Oz Fireside Theater mm-hmm. or, you know, an ensemble of players. Sure. So uh, that that was part of that mystique and, or mistake, if you will. <laughs> and, and so the Bulgarian uh, improvisational theater in exile, whatever it was, performed, uh, appeared with Bergman, who was the, the draw, <clears throat> and we improvised a, a play called Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him. Mm-hmm. Most of which was in mime, because of course we're Bulgarians, we don't speak English. <laughs> Too good. And, uh, and then after that, oh, here we go, now I have to figure this out. What? Well, like in April, you've moved to KRLA by then. Yeah, I, I, that's right. We moved to a commercial station, right, KRLA. Okay. AM station. Yeah, and were we doing the Magic Mushroom? That no, was? that's not until... You didn't do it live from the Mushroom until September. So you're still in a studio, like somewhere in Pasadena, until September. Still pretty anonymous. Okay. Nobody knows your faces. Yeah, except the people who come to see us perform live. Right. Because what we did at the Magic Mushroom... No, no, this is before the Magic Mushroom. Yeah, yeah nobody really knew who we were. Yeah. Uh, and did we get a... Uh, did we get the offer to do our first album before we did the Magic Mushroom? Or well, this is the part where Austin drops from his uh, from his cloud into the room and corrects us all and says, "No, no, Firesign was me and Bergman's idea." Apparently, he went with Bergman to a dinner with Gary Usher, and Gary wanted something. And uh, they Gary Usher, into okay, Gary Usher was yeah, a yeah, producer tell, at tell Columbia, us about Gary. and Phil Austin had worked with him in the Astrological album, mm-hmm. right? And didn't he do a comedy album called Duckman or something? The, yeah, the single Duckman. Single Duckman. Mm-hmm. So Usher was uh, tangentially through Austin <clears throat> uh, uh, connected to Bergman, and they had a dinner, and he wanted Peter to do an, a Radio Free Oz album. Okay. And Bergman said, oh, no, 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 we're going to do the Oz Firesign Theater album. Okay. And Usher said... Okay, so, which was the fall of the House of Usher, and and so we a a deal was percolating. Now, I guess I know I went back to New York, so I think that what I decided was my career is now going to be out here. Yeah, 
<clears throat> and uh, I had become estranged from uh, 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 Brandon because Brandon was a uh, there's a name for somebody who smokes pot all a viper. He was uh -huh. a viper. Mm -hmm. Okay. He really loved to smoke people under the table, okay. and to me that is never the, that was never the purpose. Of, of smoking pot yeah. or hash because then you, you, you can control your high. Yeah. You know. Uh, is, is that the point of any drug to win? I know. Same with alcohol. Same with alcohol. You know, you drink until you're happy. And right. Then, I mean, you like, know, then you switch to soda water or yeah, something. Yeah, when it yeah. turns into a Unless you're an alcoholic or a okay. viper. <laughs> you know, I didn't in know which case it's like, I can get higher than you can. Yeah, yeah, well, you know. Yes. And, and, win. <laughs> and, it's, and it's fine because Brandon was a sweet soul and a wonderful person and, and bright and funny and, and happy. But but I would become dull and and dazed, uh -huh. you know, yeah. and, and it wasn't fun anymore. And so we, we kind of drifted away. Does the idea of getting the album or the album coming up, is that what feels like the career is about to happen? Here's what That's happened. That's my question. This is what happened. I ended up living with Diana Dew, and, and uh, we had a, a lovely affair together. And at a certain point, I knew that it was over and that I had to go on with the rest of my life. And at that very moment, when we're having this conversation, the phone rings. It's for me. It's Peter Bergman. And he says, Phil, there's a first-class ticket waiting for you down at Black Rock, which was Rockefeller Plaza, mm -hmm. CBS building, yeah. or whatever. Uh, we, want, we need you to fly out because we're going to write and produce our first record. And all we have is the title <laughs> waiting for the electrician or someone like him. Yeah. And I said, okay. <laughs> Off I went. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I was living then in Peter's house, he mm -hmm. had a house in Laurel Canyon, and David and his wife Tiny were living there too. <laughs> uh, the house had like an upper mm, walkway or something, an upper shelf, or something, and we we slept on this shelf. Well, Peter, the house was downstairs, and Peter and his girlfriend Brooke. Esmeraldian. <laughs> we're downstairs, you know. And, uh, we got a picture of Brooks. Yeah. Oh. And I, later, I later got together with Brooke, too, and we had, we had some time together. Right. Whatever picture you have is not as good as the one he's thinking of. Oh. <laughs> That's the thing that I oh, want to yeah. see. And, and, uh, and uh, uh, Phil was living in Laurel Canyon, uh, married to Anna Lee, who was an English girl. Uh, so he would come to these writing sessions, and we sat down and we started writing. And it was the first time that we, we wrote together, really, because mm -hmm. we were just basically improvising. I've just got all of David's Radio Free Oz archive, and I'm mm. digitizing some of these reels from yeah. Magic Mushroom Era for the first time. Yeah, oh boy. And you're talking about the fact that you give a line away at, the, at one point from the album, and you say, oh, shouldn't give that away yet, that's on, that's on the album. So really? this is That's this is awesome. in the middle of the time when you're like writing and recording the album. Somebody, uh, they I can't remember which line they quote, but David quotes a line and then uh, <laughs> recuses himself. Oh, you haven't heard that line yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the 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 contract that we had allowed us to record 
at Columbia Records mm-hmm. <clears throat> in Hollywood, uh, at Columbia Square, mm-hmm. and the studios that we recorded in were old radio studios. Oh, so good. They were studios that you know, the, one of the studios was a, was a uh, audience studio oh, that wow. I think Bob Hope had oh, performed in, wow. among other, you know, <laughs> and and the uh, another studio where we recorded Forward into the Past, which was our single about old time radio, was a classic a radio studio of the forties. Oh. 30s, 40s. It had uh, the control room had one of those slanted glass. Oh yeah, uh, partitions. Acoustics. Mm -hmm. Oh, the acoustics were brilliant. And and it was cozy, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was just like dripping with uh, memories. I mean, you know, and 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 extraordinary to to be dropped into that environment Mm -hmm. because all of us, of course, were radio babies. We'd grown up listening to the radio and loving the radio. Uh, when I was in New York, because of my dad's connections with things, I went to radio shows fairly regularly. Uh-huh. Uh, I sat at, in Arthur Godfrey's. I saw Arthur Godfrey's show. Oh my God! But I was in the in the uh, sponsors booth <laughs> to see it. Awesome! I went and I saw uh, Archie Andrews at Ro- Rockefeller Plaza, NBC, NBC Studios, uh, full audience. You know, it was like a theater that they performed that they performed it in, and I remember the actors coming out with umbrellas because it was supposed to be raining in one of these scenes. Uh-huh. And I went, Whoa, that's cool! Suddenly uh-huh. <laughs> I went, "Oh, it's radio!" But woo, you know, <laughs> and and uh, and of course in New York, because my my mom and my dad, who both could have been actors, they were both extraordinarily handsome people, beautiful people. My mother was very very beautiful. And she was like a more beautiful Angela Lansbury, really. And my dad was a very handsome leading man type. And he, he was kind of Robert Montgomery, but more handsome. And both of them could have and would have pursued a career in theater and films. But at the time, uh, their their parents wouldn't let them do it, mm-hmm. yeah. you know. And, uh, and my dad in particular uh, was... His father, Robert E. Proctor, who had been a state senator, would help to expose the uh, Ku Klux Klan in northern Indiana. Wow. He was a, a state senator in Indiana uh, and, and a judge, and later became, first started as a railroad engineer. I have a lot of railroad engineers in my family. Uh-huh. Then on to a, a judge, state senator, and then his own private law practice. He wanted my dad to be part of his law practice. Sure. My dad was uh, an outdoorsman very athletic and, and uh, 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 naturalist, a naturalist at heart. And he had gotten into, like, I think it was Arizona State University. His father went down and literally dragged him out of there and put him in Notre Dame where he'd gone to school. Oh my or my dad went on to become the president of his class. Uh-huh. But he was damaged by that. Sure. Mm-hmm. And and then he entered my, my his dad's law firm and eventually got out of that and went to New York and became part of McNutt, Longco, Proctor, and Lee. Now, McNutt, Paul V. McNutt, <laughs> was the former ambassador to the Philippines, a very powerful man. And he uh, was a Democrat, like my entire family on my, my father's side, and uh, was going to run for president. And he wanted my dad to be his vice presidential nominee. So, 
to rest up before the convention, he went on a cruise. And during that cruise, he had throat irritation. <clears throat> What's this? Came back, is diagnosed with throat cancer, and died three months later. And my father's political ambitions were quashed after that, although he remained active in democratic politics in New York uh, for most of his life. But uh, all of this background led me to a point where when I was suddenly engaged with the Firestein Theater, I had had all this tremendous experience uh, in, and, and I was a child actor at the age of nine on television, live television in New York as uh -huh. well. And I had an excellent education at Allen Stevenson School where I learned to play the violin and I could sing and I played female role, female leads in all the Gilbert and Sullivan productions. Uh -huh. So I, you know, I had the stuff. And and my parents supported me because they were they would have been delighted to have done the same thing, and they were all musical. We all sang and mm -hmm. harmonized together. My mom played the organ. She we had an organ in the in the house, and so there was music and entertainment. Uh, we lived at one thirty nine East ninety fourth Street, and uh, in apartment six B. And in apartment six D across from us was a fellow named Max Gordon. Mm -hmm. who was a Broadway producer and owned the Village Vanguard <laughs> and the Blue Angel. Jesus. Okay? Shit. And so I would go over to parties there, and I'd meet Henry Morgan, Margaret Hamilton, the witch of the West. Uh, uh, oh, you know, I'm not even sure how many famous people I met because yeah. I was eight or nine <laughs> years old. Like, <laughs> you know, but, but again, we were in this show business environment. The Stork Club, you know, Frank Sinatra. I mean, we saw all these great entertainers. Broadway shows, mm -hmm. you know, Mary Martin in South Pacific. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I mean, I and, and uh, uh, Annie Get Your Gun mm -hmm. and Oklahoma and all of this. So I had this wonderful, wonderful, uh, exciting uh, background in all this stuff. And that's one of the, and, and, I, and it was, I was absolutely delighted to, to get into show business. It was mm -hmm. easy. It was Why fun. Why is it that you're drinking, Timmy Me Boy? Because it's bad for my hullabaloosions. I get a chance to see things in real black and white. I despise electric pink. You know, Dr. Tim is keeper of the sacred tablets. Yeah, have a tablet. <laughs> oh, nice, paisley, horsey. Give the nice horsies some sugar cubes. <laughs> Well, Dr. Tim, everyone's gathered for the daily miracle. Here's your microphone. Ever since the SARS took LSD, it's been a fundamentally better sun. More pink and green and electric blue. Well, let's, let's hope, hope it, it comes, comes up, up again, again today. today. Here it comes. He's, He's done, done it, it again. again. It's, it's coming up. up. It's coming up. Oh, it's And uh, so with, with Firesign, what was different about Firesign was nobody had to hire me. I could control it. I was in like this little safety zone working with these great guys. And now we'll get back to, to Columbia. And we're working in these classic studios mm -hmm. with 
engineers who are basically uh, state-of-the-art engineers for the time. And one of the, the jokes that, uh, one of the, well, I should say jokes, one of the funny things that happened was when we were recording this album, mm-hmm. we, 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 we went out for a break in the Columbia building and they were taking out old sound effects uh, uh, props uh, to throw away. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. Oh, God. Marching men, wind oh, machines, little doors. Oh, no. They were going to throw them away. And we said, no, no. I've had a we want, we need these things. Now. And that's when I started my career as Darth Foley. <laughs> you know? how, much the, how much of this did you get away with? What the stuff? Yeah. Oh, we, they gave us everything. Yeah. Oh, that's they so were just nice. going to throw it away. And the door that we had ended up with Stan Freeberg, really, because of Fred <laughs> Jones. Let's zip into the future here. So anyway, this album, uh, we we didn't have a, we, we didn't have a, the contract that we got later because of a fellow named John McClure, and I'll talk about that. But at this album, we were just you know like spoken art actors. Doing something different, yeah, uh, with comedy, but nobody had done anything like this, and mm-hmm. we hadn't really ever done anything like this, right? Because we weren't doing the magic mushroom, but we all knew when we wrote the album that we were going to do a radio show that, unlike anything that had been done before, we we're going to do a soundscape mm-hmm. and. And we were gonna, and we and and we could design it any way we wanted. And of course, so there's the one long story mm-hmm. waiting for the electrician, right. and then there's the story, the three little pieces on the other side. Mm-hmm. Not that we designed it that way; it just was organic, and it happened that way. Yeah, we were writing about the topics that were uh, in the culture at the moment that we were a part of, that interested us, and that we could parody. Yeah, because we—that's what we were doing on the radio. We were parodying. We were insiders, slyly parodying the the very culture that we wanted to be a part of. Yeah, you know. And wasn't there kind of a pressure overweening everybody? You have to have more than one cut on one side. You can't have. Oh yeah, all really. of the designs, all of the design. Remember, we, we were revolutionary in the sense that we wanted to create. Like a story on one side. No, yeah, you yeah. can't do that. You know, you have to have little things. Yeah, that tracks. Because, because, right. because basically, you know, uh, uh, other other than certain isolated story albums like the the Crepitation Contest and things like that, which <laughs> came from Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, or the Bozo Records yeah. or, you know, Adventures for Kids and stuff sure. like that. For the most part, comedy records were recorded routines. Right. The best of the recorded routines, uh, and and they'd last as long as they lasted, you know, cut 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 cut, mm-hmm. and and they were designed to be played on the radio if they could and all that stuff. Fine, but that's not what we wanted to do, and uh, uh, and and luckily because we had this understanding management company behind us, Jimmy Guercio and Larry Fitzgerald, uh, they volunteered. It was almost magical. There was a day they were working with an orchestra for something for Chicago. I don't know what. It wasn't Chicago, but an orchestra at Columbia. And they brought us in, and they they orchestrated and, and played, recorded some pieces for this album. Amazing. You know the dad, the, the traffic thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They, they recorded and the, and the, these transitions and all. Yeah, 
all this crazy stuff. Where did that? How did that happen? Where did it come from? I don't know, <laughs> because we were all we were just like part of this, of this magic. We were we were in the in the stream of this event that was happening. I think Jimmy understood what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. So did Gary Usher, mm-hmm. and they liked it, and they said this is this could go somewhere. This is interesting. This is like they're a band, you know. They're they're making yeah. comedy music. They're mm-hmm. a band, yeah. and and they brought their expertise to that and supported us in in ways that absolutely totally surprised me. Yeah, I didn't. And yet at the same time, it, it was expected. It was kind of like, uh huh. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. this is what we want to do, and we're doing it. Yeah. And, and they're helping us, mm-hmm. so it must be right. <laughs> right, right, there right. There were no barriers yeah. to what we were doing. Did you do? Was it sort of like? Was there ever? A, we're just going to do this, or did you ever say, "Can this be done?" Or was no. it, you just assumed? We never said That's can amazing. this be done. Good it God. was. It was. We were. We're going to do radio yeah. on record, yeah. and we're going to make it uh, interesting enough mm-hmm. that you'll be able to listen to it. A lot of times, you can yeah. listen to it again and again and again. It, it's to. not going to get tired, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, one of the predictive things about this album and this title, which Bergman basically had come up with, because he had an experience in Amsterdam mm-hmm. when he was researching LSD uh, and and uh, psychedelics uh-huh. uh, with the Fool which is a group of performance artists and musicians who later allied themselves with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And had that one album. And did a lot of artwork for the Beatles, yeah. uh, painting their limousines and things like that. Uh, he was up on a roof, smoking something, and the, there was a blackout in the city. Uh-huh. And that's where the idea of waiting for the electrician or someone like him to get things going again uh-huh. became a part of you know. He tells the story on one of these on one of these um, radio frias in the fall Ooh. of '67, and it's like he tell he says that first line out loud. We're all just waiting for the electrician, and somebody, but I can't remember his name, next to him says, "Or someone, or someone like, like him. him." Yeah, so it wasn't even all his his initial. But right. what's what's so startling about this is. That main story is about an Eastern European country mm-hmm. that is in the midst of a revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay? And that really happened first in Poland. And Lekwalesa was one of the main uh, forces in that revolution. Mm-hmm. And you know what his job was? <laughs> he was a ship's electrician. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, there's a lot of amazing stuff uh-huh. that has happened like that. So my memories of actually making the album were pure fun. Yeah, and uh, the recording sessions. David actually did. Uh, I think both David and I took movies, right? Of the of the early session. Was that oh, where that happened? I haven't got any. Home, oh, okay. Home well, movies of well, nutrition. well. Anyway, it was it, it was easy and fun to do it, mm-hmm. and and then. We had the great pleasure, because we were producing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, we were the creative producers, sure, hands-on producers. We got to mix it. I was, that was my next question, mm-hmm. actually. Okay, and, and that for me was a complete revelation. Now, when I was at Yale, from uh, fifty-eight 
59 to 62, something like that. My scholarship job was editing a program called Yale Reports. Uh -huh. And that's where I learned tape editing. Uh -huh. And what I did, as he well knows, was that uh, they had all these famous people, Henry Kissinger and poets and writers and critics and all, all being interviewed for this, this half-hour radio show. And I had to cut it down to 27 minutes or something like that. So I would take out their uh, speech impediments the okay you know their their habits like errs and uhs and buts and yeah, pauses yeah, yeah. and repetitions oh my god okay. and to, to get it down to time after taking out certain phrases and things sure. that had already been highlighted to be removed wow uh and i kept them all <laughs> <laughs> oh no and so at the, at the end of my semester I, 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 over the course of the semester, I edited, I've been editing them together on a reel. <laughs> and I, and the ultimate result is called Yale Distorts. And it's on one of our albums. It's, it, it ended up being, you opened one of the Dear Friends shows with it. And it goes things like you'll hear, you know, the, the hostess says, So, Mr. Kissinger, how did you feel at that exact moment when you had to make the decision? Well, you know that the it was it was it was a and and the uh, but but the, 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 the well you know let me try to say if I could it, and and you know it I don't but uh, so and that. <laughs> and so it's made up of all those wonderful Jesus. rhythmical it's things. the way politicians actually speak now yeah so and, and and also what's so interesting is some of them there's this guy with their French accent where I got my whole French accent from he was a teacher of mine he used to do things like Yes, but 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 you know, but 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 but, but. so you know, there's all these, each one of them had a different kind of an of, of a speech pattern. Yeah, it is absolutely so, a classic early tape. I mean, it's it is. it's it culture really it's culture jamming <laughs> it from is. from the sixties. Yeah, uh, and it's themed. It tells us. It, it does tell a story. It yeah. tells a story. It starts to go I, off on this sex tangent. Yeah, <laughs> I edited it together. Oh, yeah. And, and, oh, no, we should cut that out. You know, things like that. Uh, <laughs> I, should, I have to listen to it again. I have the original tape somewhere, but of course Oof. it probably break to pieces if I, unless I bake it, you know. Uh, so, uh, uh, we, we did this album mm -hmm. and we went and we mixed it. And the mixing was four guys. At sitting at the the, the mixing board, uh -huh. you know our our engineer would help us. Now remember that time, we had how many tracks? Ten okay. tracks 60, on the seven. You have four. Oh really? Four. Yeah. Shit. Think of that. It was yeah. four no, than eight than, than four. sixteen. And we were pioneering multi-layered tracking right, mm -hmm. right so what would happen is we'd fill up our four tracks mm -hmm. and then our brilliant engineers one of whom was named Dremel <laughs> Dremel D-R-M-L Dremel uh, would would what they call ping pong they'd take the two tracks the, two of the tracks that we'd done sure put them on the other tracks somehow and clear the two tracks so we could oh. put more stuff on okay them. yeah yeah okay that's brilliant and, yeah it was and it allowed us to to uh, uh, realize our audio vision, mm -hmm. <laughs> if you will, <laughs> and and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, evolve it during the you know during the course of our, of our mix and everything. Later, of course, they the, the tapes became much more 
that had more tracks on them, 12-track tape, for mm -hmm. instance, and made it easy for us. And then I remember what was so funny to me. The, the reels got bigger and bigger and bigger till they're like 100 tracks, and the reels were big. Holy the shit. tape was like, you know, like uh, lasagna. Don't know the more little thin things, big things. Oh tape. And you had to take a machete to cut it, you know. Yeah. And, 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 and then it all went away. It became digital. Yeah. Everything went away. It's like it got so big, and we were getting smaller <laughs> in relation, and then phew, suddenly we were all small. Yeah. Everything was small. Uh, but but during that time, the, the pleasure of being able to mix things in, mm -hmm. to take a track that we'd laid in, which was, you know, like an... an, an uh, a, a walla track, a background track, yeah. where we all could not help us. We were always saying funny things. You know? <laughs> right. Do you like yeah. horses? You know, <laughs> I have one very, I don't mean to cut you off, but there's one thing that stood out to me, and it's the craziest, it might be the longest piece of backward masking in an album ever <laughs> Yeah. in the airport. Is it the airport or train station? Mm -hmm. My brain's not working right now. What? Uh, oh, in the back, it's, is, is it, it the election, uh, the electrician piece, the first like four minutes of that, where <laughs> it's, you're, you think you hear the background of an airport? Yeah, that's what yeah, it sounds airport. like. Yeah, yeah. It's backward masking the entire time yeah you know what's happening there what? that's taken di directly from one of the andre jockman uh sound effects records from like 62 63 yeah uh -huh. what happened in that original album which they later recycled endlessly dear friends uh -huh. they had somebody page andre you can't hear it on the Firesign album because they they like mosaic it out somehow okay yeah. So every time they say his name, mm -hmm. it's... Is that what I'm hearing? That's okay. what they were doing oh, at that point. Oh, shit. Yeah. Well, see, I, see, That's, which is goofy. I, I, really, I really should have listened to the album before I came it's, in. It's, but, my, but my life is so full of, <laughs> of stuff that's happening now. Yeah, of course. It's, it's really hard anything. to go forward into the past. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we're here, to do things so for me. I apologize, yes, exactly. I apologize for that. Empty that hard drive. That is what you missed earlier, was the two of them just right. quoting just, back and forth. Oh, good. They've oh, only yeah, recently good. met, but this is <laughs> IPA and Firesign are the well, two things these two can relate over. The Firesign Theater created a an opportunity for people to coalesce and to you know to to meet one another on an interesting intellectual and emotional and comedic level, uh, it's t to this day mm -hmm. it happens. I did a play reading uh, uh, a couple of days ago, and one of the uh, people who was there is the head of a local Jewish theater. This is this is a play in which I play David Irving, mm -hmm. a Holocaust denier. Uh huh. And and all everything I say in this play. He's an Englishman. Is in his own words from his books and his lectures. Ugh. Okay, it's extraordinary. Yeah, and he absolutely is a believer. He absolutely believes in what he's doing. He's an historian. He wrote, wrote all these books, uh -huh. and he basically says that Auschwitz is a fraud. You know, and he oh. and he proves it's impossible to burn that many bodies. And you know, where are the piles of coke that they needed to to fuel uh -huh. the fires. And anyway, so. Yeah, I did did this this wonderful, interesting play. It's called Stubborn Things, and I'm trying to get a production of it in town, which I think I should. And by the way, there's a movie coming out about David Irving, which I know only a little bit about. But so this this because the reason is that he was publicly um, humiliated in a court case uh -huh. because David Irving has such an immense ego that he was. He uh, sued 
a guy who wrote a book saying that he was a fraud. Okay? Oh, all right. To, to you know, to, to uh, protect his reputation. Uh-huh. And during the course of that trial, he was, of course, revealed as a fraud. fraud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Interesting do, how a trial can do manipulating that Manipulating information and doing, you know... <laughs> Dude did not learn about Oscar Wilde. <laughs> so, fascinating story. Uh, and anyway, one this one guy... Uh, Firesign fan. He comes up to me afterwards. He says, I can't tell you. He said, you changed my whole sensibility about comedy. Yeah. You got me on the path I went on and blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, write me a check. <laughs> no. And, and, and it's, it's very comforting. And it happens all the time in surprising ways. Yeah. You know, when I was married to my second wife, Barbara Samingsen, and I was in Oslo for the first time, and we went to the Munch Museum, mm-hmm. the scream. Mm-hmm. Ah! Mm-hmm. So Peter Bergman, ah! <laughs> right? That's the picture. Uh, uh, <laughs> Help me out of this head. That's yeah, right. Help me out of this head. Ah! For, yeah, yeah. So we're standing looking at, you know, the scream, and there's this lanky guy and this hippie girl next to him, and, and I've gone, I'm going, oh, 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 he's going to say something to me. And he comes up, he says, excuse me, Farsight Theater? And I go, yes. <laughs> and, and it was another one of those international connections where I went, oh my God, what a wonderful effect you know, we, we've had on people. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com. In 2012, Stolen Dress Entertainment brought you the feature-length mockumentary Looking Forward, the story of one 24-year-old man's presidential campaign, 12 years in advance of eligibility, and 16 years in advance of a good slogan. Now, in 2016, in anticipation of an historic election season, Stolen Dress Entertainment brings you the sequel, Looking Forward, 2016. For the next nine months, 14 of the story's central characters will present video blogs, bringing you their side of the story. On the day following the election in November, the strangest, most unorthodox film sequel in history will be completed. Visit LookingForwardMovie.com to see every video as it is posted and to watch the original film for free. Subscribe to the channels you like, retweet the characters, and share your thoughts on the Looking Forward page on Facebook. Looking Forward 2016. One campaign in pieces. Uh